Good morning, church. Please stand and read with me while I read Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the field of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-law, and they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her sister, your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, she returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Church, sit down and have a seat, and we're glad that you're worshiping with us today. Matt's already given you the welcome, so I will not uh, do that again. But I want to say before I dive into the message, uh, man, last night was an incredible father-daughter, daddy-daughter, father-daughter, whatever we call it, dance uh, time here at LifePoint. Uh, and I, I just, I, 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 man, it was amazing. I saw father, ladies, I want you to know, I saw your husbands, uh, your, your daughters, daddies praying over their daughters. And it is a powerful, beautiful thing to see. Uh, I want to thank Zach Baker and all the team who ever had anything to do with that. What an incredible, amazing event. And I look forward to the fruit that's going to come out of that. So, uh, man, what an, what an event. You know, I, some of you might have heard this story before. I've been here uh, 29 years. And so, uh, you know, uh, you, some of you have heard it. But when I was 13 years old, uh, my parents and I had went on vacation. <clears throat> my brother and my sister, they were much younger. We had just got back from vacation. My mom uh, decided to run to the store because she needed to restock our cabinets And she told me before she left, do not go out of this yard. Do not leave. And, you know, you've told your kids that many times. And uh, as my mom left, uh, her taillights were still, could probably be seen going down the road when my really good buddy pulled in my driveway on his, or his driveway actually, beside of us on his, behind us on his 750, Honda 750. And, you know, and so he said, hey, let's, let's go for a ride. And I said, you know, my mom will never know. She told me to stay here, but she'll never know. That's always a great place to start. And so uh, I jump on the back, and we take off screaming down the road. We're going down 11W, Highway 11W, which was dubbed Bloody 11W because of all of the wrecks that happened. And so we sort of proven that to be, we proved that to be true. We're driving about 65 down the down the, the highway, and a drunk pulls out in front of us, and we smack immediately the motorcycle into the side of his truck. Man, I, I superman the thing, and you know, a uh, hundred, uh, several hundred feet down the highway, and uh, and man, my it it was not pretty. Okay, it was pretty gruesome to be honest. I mean, my 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 left leg was had an open compound fracture, and if you know what that means, then my foot was sort of like laying here, and my bone was sticking out my leg, and my right knee was cut to the joint, and I had road rash, all a covered in road rash. It wasn't pretty. It was very painful. I'd have three surgeries uh, in, in a few months. And, you know, this was a long time ago. I had to have three surgeries. I had to have pins put all in my leg and all this. My leg at that time was in a cast for uh, really almost a year. When they took my cast off and my pins out and all that stuff, it, this crazy thing happened. I had a growth spurt in, in this time. My right leg was three inches longer than my left leg. You believe that? It was three inches because this growth spurt, this one couldn't grow. This one grew three inches. So the doctors, when I was like 13, cut out my growth plates in both long bones in, in my right leg to stop my legs from growing. So I basically haven't grown since I was 13. Uh, my torso a little bit. They said I would have been at least 6'2", and I'm 5'10". Uh, so, uh, you know, that is the story. That's why people call me shorty today, I guess. And so uh, they really don't. If you do, I'll punch you. So anyway... Uh, <laughs> They, uh, my point of this is that, you know, life is full of decisions. You have to make decisions every day. Many of them are life-defining decisions that carry consequences for the rest of your life, either good or bad, right? For instance, 
making a decision to disobey my mom, do what my mom told me not to do, uh, cost me majorly. I'm still suffering the consequences today from a decision I made when I was 13 years old. You know, that that affected me in a very bad way. Uh, I made a decision uh, many years ago to marry Amy Nunley. And that decision marked my life in a very good way. Uh, And so, you know, you are going to make decisions. Your life will be full of decisions. Every day you make decisions. And the older you get, the more you realize the magnitude of those decisions. And today, uh, we're gonna begin a a study of the book of Ruth. We're gonna start going through the book of Ruth, and we're calling it Love and Loyalty because that's what this is really all about. It, It is about the loyalty that Ruth, a woman named Ruth, a Moabite woman, shows to her mother-in-law, a a Jewish Israeli named Naomi, and it's about uh, the love story of Ruth to uh, a Moabite woman to a a Jewish man named Boaz. It it is an incredible story, and I want you to know, we planned this series out long ago, and I'm so thankful because as I dove into the study of this, you know, for this series, literally, it's like God took this and overwhelmed me and uh, just brought so much healing into my life with what it teaches. It it was, I I don't know if you need it, but I did. And so I am so thankful uh, for God leading us to do uh, this amazing book. And so I think you're going to to really enjoy it. Now, uh, the story opens with a man named Elimelech who makes a decision that radically affects his family in a very bad way. And that's what we're gonna learn from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. We're gonna learn a few things. We're gonna learn, one, that life's full of decisions. You make decisions every day. Bad decisions uh, bring bad consequences, okay? And everyone in your orbit is affected by your decisions. Every time you make a decision, no decision just affects you. Every decision is spiritual, by the way. Every decision is a spiritual decision, and it affects everyone in your orbit. So we're going to learn those things, but we're also going to learn in chapter one uh, another very beautiful and amazing truth, and that is this, that your life, although you make decisions every day, your life is full of them, and they carry consequences, and they bring everyone with you for good or bad, uh, your life is not just the sum of your decisions. See, there's an X factor There's an X factor in your decisions, and that is the sovereignty of God. God takes every decision you've ever made, because listen, all of us in this room today have made bad decisions through our life, and those decisions, like me and the story I told you at the beginning, have caused consequences uh, that have negatively affected you, and and so, uh, and we sometimes, can we allow those decisions and those consequences to you know, get us down, derail us, make us feel less than. Here's what I need you to know. Your life is not just the sum of your decisions because God is sovereign and he takes all of your decisions, good and bad, and he works them together for good, for your good and his glory and to bring about his will. That's the X factor, the sovereignty of God. So whatever decisions you've made, God is using that, okay? That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And so uh, uh, today, we're gonna look at chapter one, and you need to, 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 we're gonna look at the opening. The story opens with these words. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. This, this tells us the context 
of when the time period for Ruth happened. It happened during the period of the Judges. The Judges is, you know, written, uh, it's a book in the Old Testament. It's about a thousand years before Christ, and it is the most immoral time, really one of the most immoral times in the history of the nation of Israel. They were very immoral, very depraved. There, there was not a king in Israel. and they, God raised up judges when they would have local threats. It was basically local, uh, typically war heroes, stuff like that, uh, to you know, put down those threats. And they were called judges. And so this story zooms in in that period, a thousand years before Christ, into the town of Bethlehem on one family, the Elimelech family. Okay, and the book of Judges actually closes uh, with these words. It says that, this is Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, uh, there was no king in Israel. It was a theocracy. Uh, There was no king. And it says, get this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, that sounds like it could have been written today, doesn't it? I mean, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the world was living. And because Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes, rather than what was right in God's eyes, uh, they were suffering the consequences of those decisions. Matter of fact, it says that there was a famine. And in the Old Testament, a famine is typically brought uh, as judgment against rebellion. And that's what's happening here, right? There's a famine in the land, and this severe famine has left Uh, Israel without any bread, without any food whatsoever. Now, most of us cannot and do not understand what real famine does. We just can't understand that. You know, uh, I know that we think we've been hungry. Uh, We think we've been hungry. My kids, we eat dinner and, you know, it's not a couple of hours later. They're rifling through the pantry and I'm like, what are you, hey, what are you doing? We just had, I'm hungry, you know? And I'm like, you ain't hungry, you know? You don't know what hunger is, right? I mean, you might be hangry, but you ain't ever been hungry, right? Most of us, because we don't know what that is because of where we live. But a lot of the world knows exactly what it means. You see, there was this famine. There was literally no food. Uh, it was like Mad Max, if you've ever seen the Mad Max movies. I mean, man, they, they, people were, they were looting, riding, killing for a piece of bread. It was that bad, right? I mean, it was, it was that bad. And so, which is, is crazy because in the midst of that, you've got this family, the Elimelech family. Now, let me, let me tell you what their names mean and what Bethlehem means. Bethlehem means house of bread. It's ironic, isn't it, that there's no bread in the house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. Uh, Elimelech, during this time of famine, he's got to make a decision. Now, his name, Elimelech, now hang on to these names because you're going to see how they come to play. His name means God is king. That's what Elimelech means. He's married to a woman named Naomi, and her name means sweet sweetness or sweetheart. Names reflect who you are typically, and so uh, she must have been a very sweet lady. There are two boys, Malon and Chilion. Uh, Malon means uh, a sickly or sickness, and Chilion means coming to an end or annihilation. And you're gonna see how all these names of all these Bethlehem and the Elimelech family, how, how they play out. So Elimelech is the father, uh, the husband of Naomi, the father of the boys. He, he's leading his family. He, he, he's got to always evaluate what's going on around him and make decisions about what's best for his family, just like you, dad, right? I mean, dads, uh, I mean, we spend, you know, or if you're a single mom, this is what you have to do. You have to spend days and a lot of time trying to evaluate, listen, 
This is what's going on in the world. This is what's going on in my neighborhood. This is what's going on in my kid's school. And make the decisions about how to better lead your family to get them where they need to be, spiritually, emotionally, uh, physically. For instance, you, you have to make decisions. Okay, at what point do I allow my kids to have a cell phone? That's a real decision. My parents never had to make that decision. Uh, we didn't have cell phones uh, then, but today we've had to make decisions. What's the, what, what, what do I, time do I allow my kids to have cell phones? How much gaming should I let my kids do? How much time should I allow them to be on the internet, on computer, on gaming, electronics? You know, should I set up Bark? Should I set up some kind of a system to, to help them? When do I let my daughter even think about dating? You know, I'm thinking, you know, right before she draws Social Security, be great, but uh, you know, what time do I let my daughter even think about start going on a date with, with guys, uh, you know, uh, I, I, you, you, should, should I buy this? Should we move to this place? Should I take this? You, you have to always evaluate. Uh, that's what Elimelech has to do here. He looks out and there's no food in, in Israel. There's no bread in the house of bread. But he looks down the road and he knows down the road in a place called Moab, the famine's not there and there's plenty of food. What do I do with my family? I want my family to survive. I want my boys to live and my wife to live. So do I stay in Bethlehem where there is no food or do I move to Moab where there's plenty of food? Seems like a no-brainer. Seems like an easy decision, a logical decision. But no decision is just that easy, right? They all have some complexity to them. And this decision had some complexity. It wasn't as simple as there's food there, there's not food here. Because you see, uh, uh, Israel, he was an Ephrathite. And uh, the Elimelech family was an Ephrathite. They were the, a part of this probably very important uh, clan, this part of, that made up this Bethlehem. They were Israeli, they were Jewish, they were the people of God. God had given them this land, promised to take care of them. So it wasn't just a logical decision, it was a faith decision. Do I trust God will take care of me or do I go provide for myself? Do I trust God uh, in faith or do I move to Moab and, and, and logic? What do I do, right? That's the decisions that we're faced with all the time and it's not just about logic, right? It, they're, they're, they're more complex for the believer. Uh, there, there's a lot of layers to our decisions and there's just much more complexity to them. And so Moab would be the last place that any Jew, God-loving Jew, would move his family because Moab uh, was destitute. It was a, a, a spiritual desert. It was immoral beyond immoral. Moab was started from an incestuous relationship. It began out of this incestuous relationship between a man named Lot, if you remember, and his daughter, okay? Now, if you go back and read that story, remember Lot is in uh, Sodom when God, God's gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, you know, remember, Abraham begs God, and, you know, if there's righteous people there, you know, and he goes down, and, and there's no righteous people there except Lot. So God goes, sends an angel, he's getting Lot out, and he's gonna rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, they're leaving his wife, his, da his daughters, and, and as they're leaving, God tells them not to look back and his wife does, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. She did not obey God's word. She's turned into a pillar of salt, and this is at the area that's where, close to where the Dead Sea is in Israel, which is got so much salt in uh, the, this body of water that 
Fish can't live. There's no living thing there, right? No, no, uh, mi- microorganisms or anything. They just can't live in this. It's got so many minerals and so much salt. And so she turns into a pillar of salt. Lot and his daughters are running. They go. They're on the hideout in the cave. And his daughters come up with this, I mean, harebrained idea that their family line's about to be eliminated. They have no husbands. And so they take their dad down to Tipsy Town, get him a little lubricated drunk, right? And one each night sleeps with their dad. I mean, and he has no clue, and so, but he gets his daughter, and so Moab, I love the Bible. You know, if you think someone wrote this, they're not going to write that story in the Bible, right? I mean, I, I love, and so, uh, uh, so this is how Moab was started. I mean, it, the Jews hated this. Not only that, but when, when, when Israel come out of Egypt, their king was Balak. He hired uh, a, a prophet named Balaam to, to, put a curse on Israel. He said, I want you to curse Israel. God wouldn't let him curse Israel. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some advice. Here's what you do. You have the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel, and that's exactly what they did. They seduced Israel to worship the foreign gods, and 24,000 Israelites died. Uh, not only that, they offered their children and sacrifices to their gods. This immoral, I mean, depraved place was Moab. And so no God-loving Jew would move his wife and two sons to this place. Let me, let me give you maybe an example of what it would be like today. It would be like you live in Middle Tennessee and the housing market is just crazy. And you're like, I can buy a house here for X amount. And man, alive, I can't believe I, I, I'm gonna buy a house for that amount. But there's a house over here. Wow, it's cheap. I can buy this house, Okay. And so then you start doing your logic, okay? You ask the questions, why is this, why is this? Then you begin to pray about it. And, and if you're a believer, or if you're not a believer, you just, this, this is cheaper. Man, I can have more at the end of the month. That's where I'm going. And why is it cheaper? It's because this house sits directly across the street from a brothel and a meth house. That's good because nothing bad can happen there with two sons, right? I mean, that's the decision that the guy's making, basically, right? He's making a decision to move his family to a bank, uh, uh, an immorally bankrupt place, and it ends up being an incredibly bad decision. Think of the irony. Elimelech's name means God is king, but what is he showing with his decisions? He's showing that God has zero authority in his life, really. He's trying to take care of his family on his own. He's trying to to, to provide for his family rather than trusting God. So they hadn't much more than gotten to uh, uh, Moab and unloaded the U-Haul before Elimelech dies. We don't know how, but he died. And when he died, he left Naomi with two boys in a pagan land. And so it wasn't long after that that his two boys marry Moabite women. Uh, and when they shouldn't, because here's what Deuteronomy 7.3 says. Deuteronomy 7.3 says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters uh, for your sons. Now, anytime in the Old Testament when God's word talks about intermarrying, it's not talking about between races, between ethnicities. I think that's a beautiful thing that honors God, right? I mean, we know that this was uh, all through scripture, some of God's greatest. That's a beautiful thing that honors God, and it's a beautiful gospel thing because of the unity of the nations, all that. It's never about races, ethnicities, uh, you know, all that. It's always about uh, two gods or or, uh, two people who worship different gods. It's always a spiritual thing, right? God is clear that his people are not to intermarry with people who worship false gods, any other gods, or who doesn't worship him at all. They're worshiping something, so that's a false god, 
Even in America, people don't say, I worship trees, I worship the sun god, I worship Amun-Ra, I worship, you know, in America, they don't say that necessarily, but man, I don't worship anything. They worship something, okay, and it's just not God. So we don't intermarry with people who are not Christians, who are not believers. That's what it means. Well, that's what these boys did. What do you think your sons are going to do? Who do you think they're going to marry when you move them to a pagan land full of pagan women? Who are they going to marry? Bad decision. Bad decision, and it has bad consequences, right? This shows the futility of making decisions from our thoughts rather than God's thoughts. It shows the futility of making decisions based on our trying to uh, take care of our security, uh, trying to take care of our comfort uh, rather than God's will and God's ways. That, that's what this shows. So it wasn't long before the boys died, before their wives, uh, Orpah and Ruth, could have children, the boys died, leaving Naomi with two pagan daughter-in-laws in a pa- daughters-in-law in a pagan land and This left them in a bad, bad way. Because you see, in that day, women only had some uh, some status uh, or place in society through their husband or through their sons. A widow without a husband or sons had no uh, status in society whatsoever. She had no money. She had no way of making a living. There was no social security. Now you've got three widows living together. Uh, They have no way to make a living. They have no way to put food on the table. I mean, they are left in a bad, bad way, right? And so think about, again, the irony. Elimelech moves his family uh, to a pagan land. He makes a bad decision. For what reason? He moved them to try to save their lives and each and every each and every one of the men end up dying. Folks, you can try to outthink God, but God is in total control. God is in total control. If, you're, uh, if God has established the day for you to die, uh, then uh, on October 30th, you're going to die on October 30th, whatever year that is, no matter where you are, right? You, you can be afraid to get in an airplane because, man, I'm afraid of airplanes and it might crash. If God's plan is for you to die and an airplane's involved, if you don't get in it, it'll crash on your house or your head, okay? God is in control. If you lose your job tomorrow, make no mistake about it, God is in control. If God's plan is for you to not lose your job tomorrow, man, you can go in and make the stupidest decision your company's ever seen and you'll keep your job. God is in control. Now, that doesn't negate our responsibility, but you need to understand that God is in control of everything. and He's in control of what's going on. Uh, But this does show the futility of making our decisions outside of the will of God. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. You think this would apply to Elimelech? You think this would apply to many of my decisions and your decisions? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So Naomi is in a bad way. Her husband is dead. Her two sons are dead. Uh, she's got two pagan daughters-in-law. They can't provide uh, you know, food for the table, and they don't know what they're gonna do, but all of a sudden, Naomi hears. Back home in Bethlehem, the famine's over. There's bread, once again, in the house of bread. I'm going home. I'm loading, I'm loading the U-Haul girls, and I'm going to the house. And they said, we're going with you. And so the, here you got these three widows and they load up and they take off from Moab to Bethlehem 
But along the way, and I'm going to do some conjecture here on why she did this, uh, not just as what it says, but along the way, I think Naomi begins to think, man, I'm going back to Israel. I don't know how I'm going to provide for myself because I have no husband. I have no boys. I don't know how I'm going to feed me, let alone feed two more mouths. So I, I can't take care of these ladies. Not to mention that, but I think at this point, she realizes that she's got two widow young ladies who are of marrying age, and there's no way they're going to find husbands in Israel because the Israelis hated the Moabites. They were pagan, they were more. Matter of fact, God's word said you can't intermarry. Although her sons uh, you know, did it, God's word said it, and she knows going back, they're going to be ostracized, they're going to be neglected, they're going to be left out. Uh, they're not gonna have husbands. They're giving up their life if they come with me. So she stops and says, ladies, y'all need to go back to Moab where you can find husbands. You're still of marry, marrying age. There's plenty of men in Moab. Uh, you can find husbands there and have a life there, so go on back. They're like, nope, we're going with you, Ruth. I mean, Naomi, we're going with you. And she says, ladies, listen, here's the reality. I have no more sons for you to marry which the Leverite marriage, which was customary, you know, you're, 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 uh, you die, and if you have no heir, then for a brother to come along and, and marry to provide an offspring in your name so that the name goes on. Uh, she said, I have no more sons for you to marry, and I, I'm too old to get married again. She said, I'm too old to get married again. I'm not of marrying age. And even if I had a husband, and, and we conceive tonight, uh, you can't wait on uh, those babies to grow into men, to, to be, get married. You can't do that. You've got to go back because going to Israel is a bad decision for you because you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be neglected. You're going to be uh, absolutely uh, on the fringe of society. No one's going to love you. No one's going to care for you. Uh, you're going to be destitute refugees in a foreign land. Go back. Orpah listened to her and Orpah goes back to uh, Moab, where she can find a husband. And that, there's nothing wrong with what Orpah did. She's not a believer in uh, Naomi's God. Uh, she's making a logical decision, a good decision for her at that time, uh, you know, because she didn't believe in, in, in Naomi's God, and this is what she should do. She takes off. So this is not about negative what on Orpah, but it highlights Ruth's decision. You see, Ruth, when Orpah took off, Ruth said, I'm never gonna leave you, Naomi. I, she said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Where you go, I'm gonna go. Where you live, I'm gonna live. Your people's my people. Your God is my God. It's her conversion. It's her confession of her conversion. Where you die, I'll die. And where you're buried, I'm gonna be buried, which in that day, man, if you're buried together, we're gonna spend eternity together. She's basically confessing that your God is now my God. Okay? And so, so Ruth realizes this is a lost cause. I, there's no fighting with her. So they take off. They come into Bethlehem. And when they get into Bethlehem, the whole town is abuzz with what's going on. The whole town's abuzz because Ruth's come home. They remembered Ruth from years ago, and she's been away. They remember Ruth, and she's come home. They probably got news and heard about her husband and about her sons, about her sons marrying these Moabite women. One's come back with her, and they're like, oh, the whole town's abuzz. You can hear, you can hear the ladies just talking about this, can't you, and, and everything in town. And they're like, oh, Naomi has come home. And Naomi hears them, and Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Now, Why? because Naomi meant sweetness, right? Sweetheart. Mara, if you remember when Israel come out of Egypt, they were thirsting and they had no water and they come to this place and there was water there, but it was bitter, bitter water and they couldn't drink it. So they named it Mara. So Naomi's basically saying, don't call me sweetheart. 
I'm not sweetheart anymore. I'm a bitter old lady. That's what she's saying. I'm a bitter old lady. And and, and so she said, don't call me uh, that. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. I had a husband. I had uh, two sons. I had hope. God's brought me back empty. He's brought calamity on me. Don't call me sweetheart. I'm just a bitter old lady now. Now, that's the first chapter except for the last verse, which brings hope that we're going to talk about leading into next week. So let me just talk about three things that I think from this story we need to learn and we need to take, pay attention to and take into our hearts and lives and understand that can really help us walk with Christ and walk through this life in an amazing way. One, life is full of decisions. Life is full of decisions. I mean, we make decision after decision after decision all of our lives. Teenagers are making decisions like, you know, should I should, should I date this guy? Should I date this girl? I mean, you know, this, the, 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 they're showing interest. Should I, should I, should I hang out with them? Whatever the, the kids call it these days, right? I mean, should I hang out with them? Should I date them? Uh, I mean, should I date them? What college should I go to? You know, I've got a daughter that's finishing up her junior year, and that's what we're talking about is what college you're going to go to. You're thinking about, uh, you know, your, your, what you're going to major in and we make decisions. You know, we get out of college, it's like, you know, uh, do I marry this man? Do I marry this woman? Uh, do I buy this car? Do I, do I buy that car? Do I buy this house uh, or that house? Uh, do I rent or buy at this time? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? Do I, do I move my family to this state? Do I stay right here? Life's full of decisions, isn't it? I mean, you, you make them and you will always make them. And as the older you get, you realize the magnitude of those decisions. Life is full of decisions. And here's typically what we do when we make our decisions. We, what we typically do is we get all the info we can on that decision, which is smart. If you don't get the info, that's really not smart, right? So we get all the info we can get on that decision. I mean, man, if you're thinking about a college, then what teenagers should be doing is trying to figure out if you know what you're going to major in. I mean, what this, what's the cost of this college? Where does it rank? How much money am I going to get? Uh, all these things, right? You're going to buy a new car? You know, I mean, here's the bad decision. I just like the color, <laughs> you know, or, or man, I just, I just want it because it's my dream car and I'm going to get it, right? And I mean, that's, that's a terrible way to buy a car, Right, I mean, I really want this Ford Viper, but you know, I mean, I come to realize a long time ago, man, I sort of had a champagne taste on a beer pocketbook, right, on beer wallet. That's not what you want, right? And and, and you you can't live a champagne taste when you got beer pocketbook, right? And so you got to ask these ask these questions of yourself, and you got to say, how much does the car cost? What kind of gas mileage does it get? That's a big one today, isn't it? I mean, what kind of gas mileage does it get? How much does it cost? How many miles has it got on it? You know, I'm thinking about marrying this guy. Does he love Jesus? Does he love his mama, right? I, I, I mean, uh, I, I'm thinking about going to this college. How far away is it from my family? Do I really want to live that far from my family? I'm thinking about buying this house. I mean, you know, uh, is there any damage to this house? What neighborhood is this house in? All these questions, and they're good. Responsible to find out all the info. Irresponsible to not find out the info. But let me, let me make sure you understand the most important info that trumps all other info is what does God say about this? You see, that's where we fail a lot, is we get all the info. I mean, man, we get all the info. We do the, crunch the numbers. We, we, we you know, we ask our friends. We get, but most of the time we fail to say, what does God say about this? What does God's word say? I mean, for instance, 
It comes down to, you know, taking a job. Here's some decisions that I help folks with all the time. Should I take this job in another state and move my family? Listen, maybe, okay, maybe. Uh, uh, God, I moved here from Texas 29 years ago, right? Uh, God led me here. Here's typically what happens when we make our decisions. When we make our decisions about is God leading me or should I move to Texas or from Texas to Tennessee or from to California? No, you don't wanna move to California. That Just don't even think about that. So uh, do I move? Well, what we do is there's two, two evaluations, two points of evaluation, career advancement, financial gain. If I'm advancing my career and my finances are going, God says yes. God's everywhere, go where the money is, right? I mean, that, that, that's where we go. Oh, listen, bad decisions are made off of that, okay? Uh, rather than, okay, career advancement, financial gain, those are questions you may need to ask, but overall is, where does God want me to be on mission? Here or there? What's more important than career advancement or financial gain is where can my kids be more spiritually developed? What, where can my family be more spiritually developed? Are they plugged in here? Can, can, can my family be spiritually, more spiritually developed here than there? Because in the end, you, your, your preference is for your kid to follow Jesus and love Jesus much more than your financial gain or your career advancement, right? So see, we gotta go back and say, what does God want? I mean, we're, gonna, we're, we're thinking about getting married. Typically, that boils down to desire, especially as you get a little bit older. You get a little bit older, you, you graduate high school, you're in college, you go through college, you're a young adult, you're working, maybe all your friends have gotten married, and you're sort of like the one that's out there that's not married. Man, you want to be married, you have this desire, and everything seems to be passing you by, you have a desire, this guy is available. Okay, and he's, he's seems nice. You know, I, I did a background check, he's not been in prison, right? I mean, and so, okay, he's cool, right? And so, so you know, what does God say about that, right? Rather than stopping and saying, okay, this, so then you go and you say, does, does this guy, this girl love Jesus? You see, being unequally yoked, when it talks about here that you can't intermarry, it's, it's a principle of being unequally yoked. And, and, and it doesn't mean that they gotta say they're a Christian. Many people claim to be Christian. You know, like we're a Christian nation type Christian. It's a cultural, casual thing. It's like, no, it's not a claiming to be Christian. It, it is like, uh, uh, does he or she love Jesus? Are they sold out to Jesus? Okay, so, so, so you know, uh, I, I mean, when we check, we're like, ah, man, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, 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 I wanna be married and they're available. And why would you marry her? And, 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 you know, and it's like, well, Pat, you don't understand, she's hot. Well, so is hell, guys, okay? <laughs> I mean, but you don't wanna go there. You don't wanna go there, do you? So, you know, when it comes down to buying a house, what's typically our evaluation? Are we moving up in the social status a little bit? It's not. You know, where does God want me to live on mission, in this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Now, if I were you sitting there, I would say, now, Pat, that's a great in thought, but most of the things you just mentioned, God doesn't specifically really tell us in Scripture, does he? I mean, God doesn't tell me where to live or what house to buy or what car to buy. God, doesn't, God, didn't, tell me 20, God didn't tell me 38 years ago, almost, 37 and a half years ago, to marry Amy Nunley. That, it's not in Scripture. So, 
Sometimes it's clearly in Scripture. Should I marry a Christian? No, clearly in Scripture. You shouldn't. Should I move to California? Yeah, if you want to move to Moab, I mean, go on. You know? But, I mean, uh, it's like some things are clear in Scripture. But others, when it's not clear, you go to principles of Scripture. God didn't specifically tell me to marry Amy Dunley, but here's what God did tell me to do. You don't marry somebody that doesn't love Jesus with all their heart, soul, and mind. That was Amy. She loved Jesus. Then I went in and I said, okay, let me, let me, let me do some evaluation. She loved Jesus. Man, she, she loved her daddy. I, I mean, she was literally no drama. Guys, listen, if, you, if you're dating a girl and you wanna know if she's a drama queen, bounce, okay? <laughs> Save yourself some trouble right there. I mean, no drama. Man, she wasn't uh, high maintenance. And I needed a, a really low maintenance woman, right? And Amy was not high maintenance. You know, Amy is like, man, she loved being with me. But if I said, hey, I'm gonna go hang out with my, 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 my bros tonight, she didn't say, you never spend any time with me, Pat. You know, and, and, I mean, she never did that. I'm like, what, what is that about? You know, and, 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 and I mean, she, she, she wasn't high maintenance. It's like, man, we, I didn't have any money and I couldn't get her big. She didn't care. You know, all those things, you know, as I'm looking, she loves Jesus. She's not high maintenance. Man, all these things. I talked to my family. I talked to my community. Bam, the principles of God are there. I, this, is, this is it. I know. I prayed about it. And, I, and the Lord, this is it, right? So that's how you make your decisions. Why? Because the most important information that trumps all other information is what does God say? What does God's word say? Because life is full of decisions. Now, here's the second thing we need to learn. Bad decisions bring bad consequences always. Bad decisions bring bad consequences always. Look at what Naomi did. Naomi blamed God for everything that had happened in her life. God brought calamity upon me. God did this. Uh, God brought calamity, and, and is God in control? Absolutely. But you are also responsible for your decisions, and Naomi had failed to acknowledge that it was her husband's bad decision to move them to Moab that had brought these circumstances into her life. She failed to acknowledge their responsibility in this. I see it all the time. I see all the time people disobey God's clear word and then ask why God is allowing this to happen in their life, the bad consequences. I see it all the time. I see, I see folks who marry a non-believer and then when they're, they're, they come from completely two different places, which means when it comes to forgiveness and grace, you're coming from two different places. If you're a believer and your husband is not or vice versa, you're, you're coming from two different places about covenant, about grace, about forgiveness, about perseverance, about commitment, two different places. And I see people all the time think, man, I'm gonna be the exception. I'm gonna missionary date. I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry this guy because he's gonna come to the Lord. And then he bolts and it's like, why is God letting this happen to me? And I'm like, really? Why is God letting that happen to you? Let's go back a moment when God said, don't do this, and you said, God, I don't really care what you say. I'm taking care and providing for myself. Now, whose responsibility is this? You're going, oh, Pat, I'm not coming to you for counseling. Yeah, you might not want to. I'm not a great counselor, <laughs> okay? So, you know, I see it all the time, right? Even when, when our consequences are from our own sin, we have a tendency to blame God. We have a tendency to blame God even when the consequences are wrong. And Naomi was just a bitter old lady. And I'm gonna be honest with you. Her husband died. Her kids, her boys had died. She's dest it's the end of the road for her. I mean, she has a heartbeat, but man, she has no way of making a living. 
She has no status in, in, in society. She, she is at the end of the road. She feels like her life is over and she is a bitter old lady because of it. And I, I get that. I won't be honest with you. I could have gotten really bitter over the last few months because what happened here was seemingly not decisions. It, for, for me, it just it's something that happened, right? And I could have gotten, it seems unfair. I, I could have gotten bitter, all, all this. I could have really gotten bitter. I struggled. I've questioned. Because here's, here's what you need to know. Some of you are there now. If you're not, you will be. And here's what you need to know. In the midst of your suffering, it is always hard to, to remember and to see that the best is yet to come. In the middle of your suffering, it's like, I just lost my husband. I just lost my wife in the prime of my life. I, I don't, what am I going, I don't understand. It's hard to think and to remember that the best is yet to come. But here's what you need to understand. If you're a child of God, the best is always yet to come. If you're a child of God, the best is always yet to come. Ruth had no clue because she can only see, we can only see the moment we're living in and hope for the next moment and the future. She could only see, and her future visions were clouded by her suffering and grief and, and, and the experiences that she had had. So she could only see the moment she was living in. Ruth had no clue, as we read through the rest of the story in the Bible, Ruth had no clue that Israel had no king, remember? Bethlehem, where she was from, had no king, but she had no clue that through her life that God would take all of these decisions that were made that were bad, and he would redeem them because God takes every decision, and he works that decision for your good and his glory. He takes every decision, and he's in control of it to bring good out of it and his will out of it, and she had no clue that her life seemed like it was an absolute mess, but God was using that to bring into a land that had no king, the greatest king in the history of Israel, and a man named David, and through that, the king of kings, Jesus. She had no clue all of that was coming through her life. Was her life over? Was that the end of the story? You tell me, was the best yet to come for Naomi? I bet it was, and she couldn't see it. And she was bitter, and she was crying out, don't call me Naomi, you call me Mara. You call me Mara, right? As, as God turned the water sweet. Remember, she said, call me Mara because the water's bitter when the Israelites come. But you know what God did? He turned that water sweet. And you know where their next step was? You know where their next stop was? They went from Mara and what, at a place where they thought we're gonna die because we have no water and this water is bitter and God made it sweet. But you know where their next stop on the journey was? It was a place called Elam. Elam, Alec, Elam. And you know what was at Elam? 12 springs and 70 palm trees. It was an oasis, a place of rest. It's where God was bringing her down. She should have looked and said, you know, you call me Mara, and it should have immediately rang in her head as a Jew. Wait a minute, the next stop is Elam. It's the family I'm, Elam. That's the, Elam, place of rest. But she couldn't see it. She couldn't see it. And the word used here in, in the book of Ruth uh, for God is the word Shaddai. Maybe you've heard El Shaddai. It's the word most often used in the book of Job. And so what does it mean? It means it's the name of God that means sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign, in control. So was Naomi and all the circumstances of her life in, in, that had worse, she, 
that had brought her to the place where she was now, were they in the control of God? You bet. If God didn't want Elimelech to die, he wouldn't have died. If God didn't want her sons to die, he wouldn't have died. They wouldn't have died. God brought her to this point. But she also needed to remember that God was in charge of all the events that came from there and the events today. He's in charge. Even though it seemed like God was far, he was not far. He was near. Even though it seemed like things were completely out of control, they were not out of God's control because he is in control of every atom in the universe. He is in control of every cell in your body. He is in control of every beat of your heart. He is in control of your job. He is in control of your kids. He's in control of your marriage. He is in complete control. That's the word that's used here because even though it looked like God was dest- had destroyed Naomi's life in tragedy, God was setting her life up for a major triumph, not tragedy. She couldn't see it. She couldn't see it at the moment. All of us, like Elimelech, Every day, you're faced with a temptation. You're faced with decisions. And get this, like a Limelech, you're faced with a temptation to go provide for yourself because you don't think God's providing. We're faced with temptations all the time to go provide for ourselves because you're single and you're in your 30s maybe. And, you know, it doesn't seem like God's bringing a husband or a wife into your life. I got to go provide for myself. I get a lot of info, but I don't get God's info, and you provide for yourself. Bad decisions might bring bad consequences. You know, you, 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 you're not generous with your money because you need to provide for yourself. I can't get this, and I want to get this, so maybe you hold back your time. I, I'm going to provide for myself. You're tempted with decisions in your marriage because you see your wife or your husband, they are not making you happy. Maybe it's mostly them. I promise you it's not all them uh, because it never is all the other person. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, let me go and, and just say, just maybe your wife or your husband is maybe in disobedience to the Lord. They're not living their life in, sub, uh, in submission to the Lord. Maybe they're like a limelight. They may say God's their king, but he has no authority in their life. Just maybe. But then you gotta stop and say, well, you know what? God wants me to be happy. That's what I hear. And so I'm gonna go provide for myself another spouse. God wants me to be happy. The only problem with that is it's nowhere in the Bible. Let me tell you what is in the Bible. Covenant commitment of marriage. Covenant loyalty covenant love. God, does God want you to be happy? Sure. John, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly, joyfully, happily, overflowing. God wants you to be happy, but let me make sure you understand something. God does not want you to be happy more than he wants you to be holy. God wants you to be holy. He wants you to do what he has commanded us to do. And his word doesn't say, oh, if your wife or husband is not making you happy, you can just bolt and find it up. You're trying to provide for yourself. It's a bad decision. You're gonna go into Moab, which is a spiritual desert. See, we're all, like Elimelech, we're all tempted to try to provide for ourselves. And folks, the grass always seems greener in Moab. The grass always seems greener, but it's full of thorns, it's full of thistles and it has no substance, and it still needs to be mowed. So rather than trying to find, you know, the grass is greener over there, and so I'm gonna move over there, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, we need to cultivate and tend the grass we have and make it green. Maybe, just maybe. No, not maybe, just maybe. That's exactly what God's word says, right? And so uh, making decisions without God's word always leads to painful consequences, and you always take people along with you 
But here's the great stuff. The great stuff that we see is God's in control of all of our decisions. God is taking them and making them. And so your decisions and my decisions, we need to learn from them, but we don't need to allow them to pull us down and backwards because God is going to use them too. Because he's God. He's God. Now, here's the last thing we need to learn. The best decision is love and loyalty. Look at what Ruth uh, 1, 16, 17, the central verses of the entire book of Ruth. Uh, it says this. Uh, you've already heard Jacqueline read it. Let me read it to you again because it just screams. It screams what this is, the importance of, of this book. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Listen, this comes from a Moabite woman. Did you know that Ruth is one of the only two books of the Bible named after a woman? And it's the only book of the Bible named after a, a woman who's not a Jew. She's a Moabite woman, and she rings words that are stronger than dirt, folks. I mean, these are absolutely some of the most beautiful and amazing words in Scripture. They're so beautiful that many of you in your wedding, the pastor quoted this verse. I've quoted this verse in weddings. Why? Because it's appropriate, because this is covenant language. It goes back to Genesis when it talks about marriage. I will never leave you nor forsake you in richer, poorer, sickness, and in health. Amy, Amy Nunley and I stood before a group of people, and we made this covenant that, that was this basically same covenant to each other. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you rich or poor or sickness, health, and we lived all of that. And I'm so thankful that we kept our covenant to each other and made it to the end when it would have been so easy so many times to eject. It would have been so easy to eject, and I'm so thankful that we believed God more than we, our thoughts and what the culture told us. We made a covenant. That's what Ruth is doing. This is Ruth's conversion. This is Ruth's confession of her conversion, I should say. Ruth is not any longer worshiping the gods of Moab. Your God will be my God, the God of Israel. Where you die, I will die. I will be buried with you. And in that custom, it's saying, you're, we're going to be in eternity together. Your God is my God. Ruth is making a covenant with Naomi. She said, Naomi, I don't want to leave you I don't want to let you face an empty future by yourself. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Your people, my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I die, and I'll be buried alongside of you. Richer, poorer, sickness and health. I will never leave you, Naomi. I am with you to the end and through the end, through all of eternity. That's a covenant. No matter what, I'm not leaving you. That's a covenant. That's a covenant language. This is exactly what our God has done for us. It's this covenant that he made. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you are redeemed, if you're, then here's what it says. God made a covenant with you. You're mine, and he ratified that covenant in the blood of his son, meaning it's done, right? That's why Jesus said, it is finished. There's no, we're told, condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
You make a lot of bad decisions, but they don't condemn you any longer. God's gonna take those, they're gonna bring consequences in your life, and those consequences are gonna be painful. And you make decisions that's gonna bring consequences into your kid's life, and into your wife's life, into your coworker's life, into your church's life. And those are gonna be painful for everybody around you. But you're not condemned. I'm making a covenant with you, God says, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's nothing you can do to make God bounce. There's nothing you can do to make him run. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. That's the covenant God that we serve. Nothing. That ought to make you go, hallelujah. That's the covenant God that you serve. And here's what Ruth shows us. When you entered into that covenant with him, it wasn't a decision that said, oh, I want the heaven. Oh, heaven, hell, I'll take heaven. Yes. It was exactly what Ruth is doing. It was giving your life, sacrificing your life, sacrificing everything on to him. You've got my life. You've got my kids. You've got my marriage. If it means that I lose my job because I'm gonna share my faith and they're telling me not, that means I don't not share my faith. Share my faith, God will take care of me because my life is his. I do what he tells me to do. It means that, that if it means my kids don't play sports because they're not gonna miss every Sunday, then I, that's what we're gonna do. It means that, that listen, I, if I can't do this, if I can't buy that house because I can't be generous and fuel the mission of God, then that's what I'm gonna do. I'm sacrificing everything. If it means I lose my life for the gospel, it means I lose my life for the gospel. My life is yours. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's what a covenant is. That's what we do. We, we've got to understand this in today's Christianity that is a commitment. It's a covenant saying, Jesus, oh, well, you're not gonna be perfect, but I am loyal. My God is loyal to me and I'm gonna be loyal to him. My God loves me and I'm gonna love him. It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? And then what happens with that? When, when you're in commitment like that and Ruth had made this covenant loyalty to God. She's now a follower of God. And you know what that did? It did, it, it did exactly what it should do. Today, it caused her to then pour over into covenant loyalty to other people, in your, sp in your wife, in your husband, in your spouse. It should have this covenant loyalty because that's what marriage is. It's not just about, the, you know, I, I told you earlier, I talked about that, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that. My first Sunday back, man, about marriage and and, and being for this planet and why? Because it is a picture of that covenant I just talked about with Jesus and his church. That's the world should see that in your marriage. Man, they love each other. Man, they're committed to each other. They don't bounce. Man, that, that, I mean, it's that covenant loyalty that should result between you and your husband or your wife. It, it, it should result in a covenant loyalty with God's people. It overflows. That's what Ruth's doing to Naomi. Because God's loyal to me, I'm gonna be loyal to him. That means I'm gonna be loyal to you. That's what the world needs to see out of God's people, the church. The world should see that when, we, that when we fight and we argue, we don't run, we forgive, that we don't gossip and we don't attack, we love and we pray for each other. Man, that's what the world should see. It's that covenant loyalty. Man, what an amazing book this is. As I'm studying this book and as we get more into it next week and the next three weeks, it's like, oh man, you're gonna, you're gonna begin to see hopefully why it brought so much healing into my life, but but here's what I, I, I need you to see today. Some of you have not yet made that covenant loyalty, co covenant commitment to Jesus Christ, and today's the day. He's calling some of you like he called Ruth. Will you respond to that covenant loyalty today and say yes to Jesus? Now, 
Listen, Christian, those of you who are, some of you have been in Moab, and it's in a spiritual famine. It's time to come home to the house of bread, or you can find sustenance. It's time to come home, Christian, to the house of bread. You don't have to remain in a spiritual famine. Come home to the house of bread. 